Come on, let's go. I thought we broadcast direct from what overseas happens. We are about to broadcast this moment in our history. Hello and welcome to the History Workshop podcast. I'm Mary Beth Hamilton. Today we're launching a series of episodes devoted to historic passions, the strong, sometimes obsessive pull of curiosity about the past. Over the next few months, we'll be speaking to people who've made that curiosity their life's work, whether inside the historical profession or beyond. And it's the possibilities beyond professional history that today's guest is uniquely qualified to address. Nell Irvin Painter is the Edwards Professor of American History Emerita at Princeton University. She's the author of many award-winning books, including Standing at Armageddon, The United States, 1877 to 1919, Sojourner Truth, A Life, A Symbol, and The History of White People. As the first African-American woman to earn a PhD in history from Harvard, she explored the fraught, tangled dynamics of American racism, and she built a career that was studded with accolades, including four honorary doctorates, multiple fellowships, and elections to the presidency of the Southern Historical Association and the Organization of American Historians. But in 2004, Nell Painter switched direction, retiring from her post at Princeton and reinventing herself as an artist. At age 64, she enrolled in art school, first as an undergraduate at Rutgers University, and then as a graduate student at the Rhode Island School of Design. Today, her works of visual art are held in collections across the U.S., including the Smith College Museum of Art, the Newark Museum, and the National Museum of African American History and Culture. How she made that transition from historian to artist is the subject of her new book, Old at Art School, a memoir of starting over. I spoke to Nell Painter via Skype from her home in Newark, New Jersey. Thanks for agreeing to be here today. Yes. It's really wonderful to get a chance to speak to you. Um, So just to start kind of with the the point of drama, um, (laughs) your your memoir, Old at Art School, it it chronicles a pretty remarkable journey of uh, transformation. So you're in your 60s, you've had a long, illustrious uh, career as a historian, and what most people would do, um, most historians, most people, the easiest thing to do is to, you know, ease into a comfortable retirement, stick with what you know, continue maybe to write history books, maybe spend a little more time in the woods, in your garden, a bit more traveling, Mm-hmm. Instead, you chose uh, what's arguably a much more challenging path. And I wondered if you could talk us through that turning point when you realized that this was a change that you wanted to make. Well, Mary Beth, it came in steps. The first step was like in 1982 when my mother retired, both my parents retired um, from their positions. Uh, my mother's job was um, hiring and firing uh, teachers in the Oakland public schools. I'm from Oakland, California. And my mother, both my parents were very well educated. My father, being a man, uh, got a commensurate job much sooner. I mean, it took a little while because he was a black man. But uh, my mother was um, a black woman So that took longer, but she did get a career in the 60s, which she kept on for quite a while, for about 20 years. And all that time, uh, she watched me and my friends 
enjoying our research, our writing, and our publishing. At one point, actually, uh, when I needed some research help in the University of California Berkeley Library, my mother acted as my research assistant and very well. So uh, when she retired, she decided, well, she wanted to write books, too. And she did. It took her 10 years to research, write, and publish her first book, which was about uh, her, our nice middle-class black friends in Oakland. And it was called The Unsung Heart of Black America. This was not her title. It was her publisher's title. Um, John Hope Franklin very generously blurbed the book. It was a nice book. Um, Then she started another book which was, to me, much more interesting, a memoir. She started it to tell me and my friends what they were going to encounter as they got old. But it turned into a very personal book about her own experiences. Um, Two things. One was, as she wrote this book, she stepped away from her role as an author in the first book of representing kind of black people into this is about me my own personal experience it was about her as an individual which is very hard to do when you're black in america because everything conspires against your seeing yourself as an individual that's that's what white people do and some it costs them sometimes but at any rate it's hard to write about yourself as yourself, just yourself, but she did it. And she called the book, I Hope I Look That Good When I'm That Old, because that's what people were saying to her all the time when she was in her 80s. And when she died at age 91, she was working on a third, not a book, but a project on vital old people. Um, It's kind of kind of ironic that you'd be working on vital old people and then die. But at any rate, uh, so my mother inspired me. That's the short answer. My mother inspired me. You can do something different when you're old, when you retire. And then for art, um, I had been an art major briefly at the University of California, Berkeley, Uh, As an undergraduate, uh, that did not work out. Then I tried French. I ended up in anthropology. Uh, But I I always liked to draw, um, and to a certain extent to paint, but really to draw. I love the line. But I went away from that. I didn't know how to be an artist. We didn't have any professional artist friends, whereas we had a lot of academic friends. My parents were academic And I was a good writer. I loved research. I loved writing. So that's the way I went for a long, long, long time. Then came Sojourner Truth. Sojourner Truth did not read and write. She was very intelligent, and she made canny use of the written word, particularly the Bible, uh, but also the literature of feminism and anti-slavery and human rights. But she didn't read and write. So for me to get to Sojourner Truth, for Sojourner Truth, as close as I could get to the way she saw herself, I had to turn to other means. And the other means I turned to was photographs, was photography. 
So I went over to the incredibly wonderful Marcon Library at Princeton, and I gave myself a bit of an education in the rhetoric of the image, and I loved it. So bit by bit, I started, I tried two introductory painting courses at Princeton, which I loved. I did the drawing and painting marathon at the New York Studio School, which I loved. And I thought, well, I think I can do that. You know, I could, I could leave home at 6.30 in the morning and get to 8th Street in New York City um, for 9 o'clock and stand up and draw and paint until 9, uh, well, till 6, and then have a little dinner and then do crits and so on. I could do it, and I really enjoyed it. So I thought, why not? Why not? I, I am the most fortunate person in the entire universe I have a very supportive husband. My parents, when they were alive, were very supportive. And um, I've, I've just been really, really lucky, and I don't take that for granted. I really appreciate it. So why not do something else that I wanted to do? I've got time. And luckily, I also had the money because it's really expensive to go to art school. Absolutely. So I did. Absolutely. That, so... I mean, all of that is completely fascinating. Um, I was really struck, too, in, in the memoir by your description of, you know, not just what was pulling you toward the visual, but what was, uh, if this is the right way to phrase it, becoming kind of um, less satisfying in history. You, you, you say that, that, you know, part of what was drawing you was this, this search for the sheer pleasure of, of making art, but... Also, you said that it was a, a search for a freedom from truth. Truth. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And I wondered yes. if you could say something about that. Well, let me add that I still love history. I still love researching history. I still love writing history. I still love history. However, there is this other thing about history that you have to respect the truth. I mean, it's not as if you can look through the sources and in the Rankian sense uh, portray what actually happened as it was actually lived. You can't do that. You, you're not living in the same time. But you still have to respect the archive. You have to respect what's there in the historical record. You can't pretend that because you don't like it, it's not there, or because it's inconvenient that you, you still can't ignore it. You still have to have a sense of what's true. But in art, you can do whatever you, I can do whatever I want. So if I want to put Sojourner Truth's uh, downtown uh, Manhattan right next to Franz Schubert's Vienna, I can do that. And I did. So I can do what I want. And since there's no visual orthodoxy, I really can do what I want. I really can. So um, in the words of the immortal Santana, I am free. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fantastic. Um, so, so a lot of what you describe, in, especially in the, in the early part of the memoir, um, well, the bulk of it, I suppose, is the, um, the learning curve. That, yeah. that you faced when you set out to do this? Because it would have been one thing, right, to just decide, okay, I'm going to spend the rest of my life painting. 
but but you decided to actually do a, a training, an undergraduate, and then a, yeah. and then a professional training. Yeah. So yeah. so 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 tell us a bit about that, about what what happened. Um, I think what I was particularly interested in was the way that so many of the skills and habits, and even the way of seeing that had actually served you as a historian, served you brilliantly, um, began to work against you in some ways as an they as an did. art student. They did. They did. Um, I first uh, sensed it in um, my respect for coherence uh, and. I, I believed in that without thinking about it. And I had to learn to let that go. Uh, you don't have to be coherent. And in fact, coherence can be held against you as academic, which is a very bad word in art. So there was that. Um, I didn't have the sense that what I said in history had to be representative I had pulled away from that earlier on into um, writing about what I thought was interesting. But there was still the kind of lingering sense that there had to be larger meaning, meaning in the discursive sense, meaning in the way that historians or scholars think about meaning, that's kind of like text meaning, into visual meaning, which is very different and can seem meaningless in the discursive sense. And uh, to embrace that, uh, to loosen up, and that is a continual struggle for me, to loosen up, loosen up. Um, So that's not over. The other thing was um, a struggle that I recognized very early at Mason Gross when I was an undergraduate, a BFA student, was that that art teachers and I think art institutions like to believe that there is something, a a kind of external sense of value that is different from the market. And one of my teachers, one of my beloved teachers actually compared it to uh, the truth in physics. And of course, in my way, I said, no, 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 that's, I don't agree with that that scholarship has this has steps that you go through we have we have uh, peer review we have um your steps you know you're an assistant professor you're an associate professor you get tenured you're a full professor you're a chair professor you can tell how you're doing by the standards of the field it's not like that in art and in many ways, the standard of the field is the market. And the market is so pegged to social prestige. So if you look at what is portrayed as great art in the great museums, it's work by white men. And I knew really early that It wasn't just white men who were making good art and that discrimination was playing a part. So very early on as an undergraduate, I realized that I was going to run into some problems because not only is art besotted by youth, um, it's also racist and sexist. So 
it's like, here's this old black woman. What? (laughs) But I threw myself at it anyhow. Yeah. Yeah. And you mentioned that within this world of of professional training and art, that the word academic was a a negative word. And I get the impression, too, the word history or historical had, particularly for you, you you say at one point that your relation to history became uneasy in art school. Yes, very uneasy. Um, My teachers didn't want me to use history history. Um, I could slide by sometimes using art history, images from art history like Max Beekman's self-portraits or um, Alice Neal or Faith Ringgold, but to use history history. And that was the source material. And I did feel I did feel I wanted to use source material, subject matter, subject matter. And subject matter can be kind of, especially figurative, because what is history? History is about people, figurative. And um, so that was what I carried with me. But my peers were making either um, abstract art. I'm I'm hesitating here because some of the best of it, like one of my teachers makes abstract art that is very organic and feels human it's wonderful work but um my peers in school were making abstract art that had no meaning no discursive meaning and those who made representational art um they never put people in it was like people were were beneath notice but people were my thing so all of that made for a very bumpy transit for me as a student. And I remember at one time when I was in graduate school, I got so confused and, and frustrated that I actually made a painting that had footnotes. They made me take the <laughs> footnotes out. But I keep saying, I am going to make another painting with footnotes. <laughs> So, so did that process of working out how your historical imagination, for want of a better phrase, how, how that would feed into your art, did that, was there an arc to that that you feel you've sort of come out the other side of now? I haven't come out the other side, but at least I've gone in. <laughs> um, and that happened uh, after art school, a couple of years afterwards. I was invited to the Met to talk about a, a small exhibit they had of the influence of African art in New York modernism. And I was invited as Nell Irvin Painter, the historian. But, of course, I came as Nell Painter, the painter. So I knew that if I talked at the Met, I was going to show my own work. So I did a combination of research on um, the African art that that made its way into the Harlem Renaissance. I knew a little bit about the Harlem Renaissance. And I actually went back to Marconde and, and studied up and found it absolutely fascinating, discovered a, uh, several people I hadn't known about before uh, than as historical figures. So the, the historical research I enjoyed thoroughly and I made um, digital collages. So I made art out of that 
historical source material, which I also enjoyed tremendously. And I said, ah, this is my way. And as I was writing Old in Art School, I went back through my journals. And over the whole course of that five years, or maybe more, every three months or so, I'd talk about wanting to make art books, artists' books. And then I'd forget and get frustrated. And then I'd remember again. So wanting to make artists' books is something I had been wanting to do. And it kept not feeling right, and I kept forgetting it. But with that Met presentation, I actually started uh, down a new road. Uh, The Met presentation became Art History by Nell Painter, uh, Volume 27, Ancestral Arts. And so it was my first artist book, and it was based on historical material made visual. That one was very remained pegged to the presentation and the subject matter. It actually had a cast of characters at the back. And you could see the figures in the images. I made another volume, Art History by Nell Painter, volume 28, that took some of those images and then reworked them, um, reconceptualized them, And many of those images were no longer representative, no longer even recognizable. And there was no list of characters at the back. So those were my steps into finding my way of making art. So it was was several steps, and it's not over yet. Um, I made a lot of little accordion books, I made a bathroom book for Mina. Uh, Mina's a poet friend of mine. And the images were just the shadows from my downstairs bathroom at my house. I made a birthday book from my dear friend Thaddeus Davis. She was turning some big birthday. And this was um, an accordion book of places that we'd been together and she'd been and topics. And it was just, these things were just play. And I I gave them away. I made two um, accordion books crowing about swimming 33 laps in the the Newark Y. So that was how I I found my way to make artists' books, which I still do. Mm. So there's there's a wonderful passage in your memoir. I think you're at at RISD by then at Rhode Island School of Design. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're you're at home at night in Providence. You're making a piece of art in your kitchen with a oh, glass yeah. of wine, and you talk about the piece making itself. You the say the piece made itself. Yeah. So uh, I was in this uh, little one bedroom apartment. And since it was just me, I mean, my husband and two tabby cats would come, but they would just come for a weekend uh, every couple of weeks. So meanwhile, I would just make my art. um, I made art all the time. So I had a studio in the Fletcher building and I made art all the time there. And I made art in my apartment on this table. So there were all these bits and pieces left around. There were... um, kind of six by 12 ends of watercolor paper. There there was um, ink and 
little bits and pieces. And it's like this piece just came together of its own volition. It just made itself. I still have it. It's called Long Piece. Um, I like it very much. It's on the hallway as you come into my studio. And it's just there as this autonomous piece of art. And it is abstract, actually. It's long and narrow, so it looks like something you could read, and you read it horizontally. In the book, we show it vertically because that's the way to to fit it into the page. But it's definitely a horizontal work uh, that you can read, even though it has no words. So... What I wondered, too, when I was reading that, you know, what you're describing of that, that state, again, of, of you say, you know, your hand untethered from the past, just free of intention. Did, did, you, did you ever find that writing history, that you, could, that you found yourself dropping into that same state, that a piece would, would write itself in that way? No. Um, and I hesitate because this, the same... I, uh, I call it my reptilian brain. And I also have my writing machine and my artist-making machine, which I think is the same machine, which prompts my reptilian brain, or it's the other way around. And when I really get into it, I'll wake up in the morning, and this reptilian brain will tell me, if I'm writing, what to go write, what to say. It dictates the words. So in that sense, yes. It also, when I'm... Uh, a painting and drawing steadily, it makes images and tells me, shows me what what to draw or what to paint. Um, I I have less um, I have less confidence comparing those because the, when it's writing history, because as I said before, history is tethered to the truth. Mm-hmm. So there's only so far you can go. But I did find, and this is something I learned when I was working on The Secret Eye, which was uh, the, a plantation mistress's uh, journal, 1,380 pages over many decades of a plantation mistress writing. And I read that about eight times. And that was something, that was a, a trick I held on to in that as I would read and reread and almost memorize a source, then the internal workings of the document would make themselves seen. So that's not exactly the same as the process, the sort of autonomous process of making art, because there's, there's nothing to see underneath in, in the visual um, but the sense of really getting into it, of uh, what my California friends call getting into the zone, that can happen either way yeah. with me. Yeah. And do you think, if you look back, you know, before art school, before historical training, did you, was there a moment that you sensed that dealing with the past imaginatively or creatively or in some kind of way was actually going to be your life's work when your historical imagination came alive. Is that something that, you know, came alive for you at a particular point? Um, 
historical imagination way back when I was working on my master's degree in African history at UCLA. And I had a job as a research assistant with an African historian and reading primary source material. That's what really hooked me. I also discovered that there were kind of two layers. Um, We historians call them the primary sources and the secondary sources. And I learned, I, I recognized in my classes that the secondary sources had their own narratives. And if you wanted to be believed as a student, you had to respect other historians' narratives. Now, here I was... Uh, coming out of anthropology at Berkeley, of um, African history at Ghana, of French history in Bordeaux. So I was seeing things differently. Um, Just being a black American in those days, you see things, I mean, you still see things differently from your fellow students. And I realized that there were things, I could say them perhaps, but I could not be heard because they were not the narrative. Um, so, so that intrigued me very much. And by the time I got to Harvard, one of the reasons I went on for a PhD, um, I started in 69, was at that moment, there was an opening for my way of seeing the world. And I felt then that I could write history that was true to me, not just historiographically true, um, that would be very satisfying. So that's why I went back for a PhD um, and continued to write what some people say is kind of crazy history. I mean, my history, the way I write history is not standard. Um, When I wrote Standing in Armageddon, uh, which was originally conceived as a, a volume in a series, um, a textbook series for Knopf. And my editor there uh, kept trying to pull me into the historiographical narrative. Um, And I kept wanting, I was reading all this history and thinking, well, what happened? Why are people talking about the Danbury Hatters, for instance? So I went and read about the Danbury Hatters and uh, Actually, going back to the primary sources made that a very, it's a radical book. Um, At the time that it came out, when did it come out? Like 86, I think. Um, The radical historians didn't review it. I mean, the radical historians, I think, held it against me that I was a middle-class black woman. I wasn't their kind of black person, even though Standing in Armageddon is a very radical book. Um, but at the time, my editor kept trying to corral me, but years later, he said, as Standing in Armageddon has remained in print and, um, gotten its fans, he said, you were right, finally, but that took like a decade. So, uh, you know, I write these odd books, um, that give me great satisfaction, but they don't necessarily fit. Um, into the world or fit into this world of scholarship at the time. Thank heaven for the New York Times Book Review, which has reviewed all my books. 
Do you think that that sort of singularity of vision that you were able to keep as a historian has helped you make this transition into art? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It has helped. It has made it possible. Um, I spoke about my mother's uh, change and how important that was for me. But my parents always encouraged me. My parents, I think, gave me great uh, what some people called ego strength. I just do. I just do what I want to do. Um, I am not immune to the eyes of others, but I manage to get through life the way I want to, which not everybody can do. The older I get, the more I appreciate that. So uh, once again, I thank my parents for letting me just be. Uh, just I had a couple final questions that you say in the book that for a time you described yourself as a former historian. Yes, yes. And is, I wondered how you describe yourself now. Um, now I am a painter who has a day job <laughs> of uh, going around talking about history. But I think... You know, I didn't know how old in art school was going to act in the world. And I didn't I didn't ever define myself as someone who writes, I guess you would call it creative nonfiction. Um, and so, certainly not memoir. Um, but I have to admit that in addition to thinking like, I still think like a historian. I think like some other stuff, too. Uh, I think like an art critic now. I think like someone who makes art. I was talking to somebody the other day about the difference between how artists and non-artists approach works of art. People who aren't artists will look at uh, a painting or a sculpture and say, what does that mean? And an artist will more likely look at it and say, how did she do that? Mm-hmm. So it's very different ways. I've become a formalist uh, in the sense of wanting to know what the surface of things, how things look and how they got made. Um, I'm l- relatively less interested in uh, how this critiques American history or American politics. That said, I did make a piece a year ago at the Brodsky Center that did talk to American history. It's one of my few pieces with a lot of text, and it's called You Say. You can see it. I'm pretty sure it's on my website now. Yes, it is. Um, Yeah. And uh, that has been acquired by two uh, public Collections. It's uh, in the Minnesota, no, the Minneapolis uh, Institute of Art and the Smith College uh, Museum of Art. It's the only piece I have that is in two museums. So in that sense, people are still wanting from me that historical eye, that historical sense. And I think the reception of Olden Art School is related to the history of white people. A lot of people know the history of white people and like it. And I think knowing that the person who wrote the history of white people has written another book, no matter what it might be, 
would bring that subsequent book um, a heightened level of interest, which I very much appreciate. Yeah. So thinking of myself as an author has, I mean, of a different, not just an author of history, but kind of an author author, I don't know how to fracture that figure that is part of my my identity yet. And presumably, too, the fact that in between the publication of the history of white people and the publication of the of um, old at art school um, was uh, a presidential election, which has changed a lot of things and, uh, yeah. and created. I, I got the sense that that the the the, the you say piece was really created in response to kind of unavoidable questions. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And it was created in um, the the printmaking uh, workshop because the papermaker was the one who was saying the the you say part of it. And I was saying the I say. So it really did come out of the Brodsky Center in that way. But um, I I I haven't made a lot of art since Old in Art School was becoming a book because it was very time-consuming. So um, on Sunday, I'm going to have a PBS crew come and to my studio, and they want to see me make art. And I'm trying to I haven't made art in quite a while because I've been spending so much time on emails about Old in Art School. So let me see if I can remember how to make art. <laughs> and then the second thing is the way I make art, it, it's, there are several steps. So there's like the drawing step, and then you have to let the thing dry. And then you can scan it. And then you can manipulate it through Photoshop. And then you print it. And then you have to let it dry again. And then you can paint on that or draw on that or cut it up. But then you have to let that dry if you're using glue or uh, matte medium. So I don't know what I'm going to be able to do to make art that either can be made all on the same day or won't simply be me sitting in front of the computer, which must be the most boring sight in the world. <laughs> well, that is all so wonderful. Um, I just wanted to just wanted to leave um, by by uh, giving you a chance to just say a little bit more of this wonderful phrase that you have on your artist's CV. Uh, After a life of historical truth and political engagement with American society, my artwork represents freedom, including the freedom to be totally self-centered. Yeah, and to be totally self-centered. I mean, this is something I learned from my young colleagues, particularly in undergraduate school where they were really young. And at one point I call it the freedom of disregard. If they didn't understand anything, they damned it. Oh, this is so stupid. And if they didn't like a rule, they wouldn't follow it. If they had an assignment that didn't suit what they wanted, they wouldn't do it. And this absolutely amazed me. And I admired it. So for a certain, I mean, of course I couldn't carry this all the way through, but it was something new to me to just disregard. That was, that's freedom. And that part of that disregard also relates to being a woman 
a black woman, a black person in the United States, in which all of those roles are so hedged around with stereotype and responsibility and generalization. Um, and it's like, if you're being, if you're black or you're a woman or you're a black, especially if you're a black woman, and you say, hey, this is me, uh-uh, that is, that is courting disaster, that is self-hatred, that is where are your responsibilities, what kind of a person are you? And if I ever really stood up and said it quite that boldly, I would say, ah, I'm old. <laughs> because you know, you you do your part for uh, for six and a half decades, you know. And I me- I remember saying years ago, "Mammy comes with a sunset clause." <laughs> Responsibilities do 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 not go on forever. And I remember somebody looking. Oh, it was at my um, Odalisque Atlas um, maps, which um, are not they're made up maps. And this viewer said, well, you know, what does this mean? What's going on here? What's the history? And I said, well, the viewer makes the meaning. And if you want to understand the history, read my history books. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And that is its own kind of freedom for you to have your own ability to express uh, truths that aren't entirely coherent. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it didn't, it doesn't, it didn't, and it doesn't all fit together neatly. And that's okay. Yeah. That's okay. Fantastic. Nell Painter, thank you so much for being with us today. You're very welcome. Nell Painter's memoir, Old at Art School, is published by Counterpoint Press. You can see examples of her artwork and much else at her website, nellpainter.com. Thanks today to our producer, Hannah Elias, and to the staff of the Ohio State University Digital Union, where I recorded this podcast. Please visit our website, historyworkshop.org.uk. You can find us on Twitter, at HistoryWO, and on Facebook and Instagram as History Workshop. This is the History Workshop podcast. I'm Mary Beth Hamilton. Thanks for listening. <laughs>